couple of years ago, Sarah, my wife and I, went to Lanzarote with Christians in sport. It was a kind of sporting holiday. And when you're in that kind of sporting context in a sports resort, there's a certain amount of competition that goes on. And in competition, there's always comparisons. Who's stronger? Who's faster? Who can go for longer? All these types of things. Kind of trying to prove your manhood and all that nonsense. But on this trip, there was a girl called Jenny. And Jenny, at the time, was a Team GB Paralympian athlete. It was amazing just to see her athletic prowess. When we, we were there, she held four world records. And so watching her, although kind of um, in a wheelchair, she played tennis with us. Uh, she went surfing. She played basketball. She did the swimming leg of a triathlon. It was incredible to watch this world-class athlete. Amazing. The trouble is, when you're stood next to someone like that, it invites a comparison. So here's Jenny with her four world records. And here's little old Andy, 50 meters breaststroke certificate. And there's a comparison. And immediately when you see her stunning athletic prowess, you see my averageness. It immediately invited a comparison. I remember going to a church in London, one of these trendy churches, it's full of young people, and they all seem to be beautiful. They all come on stage, they're all gorgeous, probably got makeup on, and you see these people and you think, I'm ugly, when you see the comparison of all these stunning people. It immediately invited this comparison that made you feel average. Now in Leviticus 16, the first verse reveals a comparison. If it was a movie, it would be this kind of hazy flashback moment with the deep voiceover that says, a few days previously. Leviticus 16 verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. You can read this story back in Leviticus chapter 10. The two sons of Aaron went to the most holy place where God dwells. Now you might think, happy days! It's hard to get young people to church these days. Here's two young sons eager to get into where God dwells. But we read in Leviticus chapter 10, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord incinerated to ashes, an act that led to death. See, just as me stood next to Jenny invited a comparison, me walking into that London young church invited a comparison, so too when these two sons of Aaron came close to the eternal God, it invited a comparison. When they came close to his holiness, his goodness, his perfection, it revealed their sinfulness, their dirtiness, their uncleanness. So much so that it was right that they were consumed. It's a little bit like their sin 
was this covering of petrol. And as soon as they got close to the fire of God's holiness, there was only one outcome. Death, destruction, ignited into incineration. An act that led to death. Sinful people cannot come close to a holy God. The comparison is not favorable. It is not an example of opposites attract. It is an act that leads to death. That is why, if you know your Bible, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, what happened? They're banished. They're thrown out. Why? It was a matter of necessity because if they stayed in the garden, they would have been consumed. It is actually an act of grace that they are banished from being with God because a sinful people cannot dwell with a holy God. It is why hell exists. Hell was not a good idea that God thought this might work. It is a necessity because just as a sinful people cannot dwell with a holy God in space and time, so too they cannot dwell with a holy God in eternity. Sinful people cannot dwell with a holy God. We must not lose sight of the fact that your sin, my sin, is primarily before and against the holiness of God. Your sin is not just you not reaching your potential. Your sin is not just the harm that does to other people. No, with the psalmist, your sin is before you, you alone have I sinned. Sin is primarily against and compared to the holiness of God. Yes, he will punish the sex offenders. He will bring murderers to justice. He will bring judgment on the terrorist. But such is his goodness, his holiness, his perfection, that the comparison is not just seen before the vilest offender, but even the subtle offender. Not just before the blatantly unrighteous, but the supposed self-righteous. I was chatting to a mate this week, and we noted how it's so easy to compare yourself favorably to people that are worse than you. And when you do that, to consider some sins more favorable than others. But you know, when the comparison is not with someone worse than you, but the holiness of holy, holy, holy gods, there is never a favorable comparison. Sure, he won't look over the sexual offender or the terrorist with uh, just an, an unconditional mercy. But so too he won't overlook or turn a blind eye to our lies, our pride, our gossip, our lust, our arrogance. Now the holiness of God will ignite even a little covering of petrol. As much as it will lashings of petrol. The two acts are acts that lead to death. Our sins are that petrol that will ignite before the fire of his holiness. Now, I don't know how you found reading through the whole of Levit Leviticus 16. 
I think the temptation is to say, this is old school, this is old testament, this is old theory, this is old history. Imagine telling that to Aaron, who stands here in Leviticus 16, still grieving, still raw, still in agony over the death of his two sons. His eyes are still red as he's had to come to terms with him outliving his two sons. It's not theory. It's life. It's not just a textbook. This is intimate agony for Aaron. It's not theory for me. It's not theory for you. Because I and you will too one day face the holiness of God. One day you will meet your maker. One day you will walk close to his awesome, fiersome holiness. And if we are found covered in the petrol of our sins, there will be only one outcome. That just as Aaron's sons were consumed, so too you and I. You and I need a solution for our sin. You and I need somehow this sin to be taken away, to be washed away. And do you know what? The glory of the gospel in Leviticus 16 is found in the first three words of Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke. The very God who is offended by our sin is the one from whom the solution to sin comes from. The very God that ought to consume us is the God who speaks solution to us. He saves us from himself. The Lord spoke. And it does appear as you read through Leviticus, it is hard, it's complex. All these sacrifices, all these cleansings, all these offerings, all these big words. But I want to show you simplicity in Leviticus 16 this morning. God's solution comes in a kind of one, one, one formation. One, one, one. One man, one place, once a year. God's solution, one man, one place, once a year. One man, Aaron, the high priest. Now, if you were an Israelite and you wandered around the nation of Israel, you would know who the high priest was by what he wore. He was decked out in the most extravagant of garments. A robe of blue with bling all over the front of it, bells around the bottom of it, and a stunning turban. You knew who the high priest was. And Aaron, this man, was chosen by God to act on behalf of the people to bring the solution for a sinful people. One man. One man in one place. The holy of holies, the most holy place. This was the place where God dwelt. It was the place at the heart of the temple, separated from everything else by a massive curtain. It functioned as this no-entry sign. It was a place where Aaron's sons had tried to enter and had died. One man, one place, once a year. This event, this day of atonement happened once a year, every year, so that God might dwell with his people. And on this day, this one man, the high priest, would take off his extravagant garment. Have a look at verse 4. 
He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him and to put on the linen turban. What's the point? Before the rest of the people of Israel, compared to everyone else, he's splendid. But on the one day he enters the one place, he is nothing more than a servant. Before the people, he is set apart. But before God, he is nothing more than a slave. He puts on these garments of service. Now, if you were concentrating in the reading, you would have noted a certain repetition in the chapter. Fourteen times came this phrase, to make atonement. To make atonement, to make atonement, to make atonement, so that they might have atonement. Now, what does that word mean? It basically means to cleanse, to avert punishments. If you like, to maintain that metaphor, to atone is to get rid of the petrol that ignites with God's fiersome holiness. To make atonement. And atonement is going to come for God's people in the form of two goats. Look at verse 7. Here's a little summary. Then Aaron is to take two goats and to present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And this morning we're going to look at these two goats one by one, a little bit of goat gazing. And we're going to see the two goats, goat number one, before the Lord, one goat slaughtered. And then the second goat, uh, before the people, one goat sent away. And as we look at what this atonement is, we see that God's solution for the people is substitution. God's solution is substitution. Let's look at goat number one. Goat number one, behind the curtain for the Lord, one goat slaughtered. Read with me from verse 9. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. Look down to verse 15, which continues with the same goat. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. Now, that's very black and white. It's just words on a page. Try and get yourself behind the words to the world behind the words. Here's the high priest, and he has to catch a goat. My guess is that's tricky. Even once he's caught the goat, he's got it under its arm and it's wriggling and it's... What noise does a goat make? It's not bleating, is it? Anyway, it's wriggling and it's bleating and it's making this noise and he fumbles around for his knife and he slits his throat. The wriggling stops. The noise stops. His white garment is no longer white. It's covered in blood. What's the point? Well, it's called here a sin offering. What is graphically being taught to God's people is that sin has a punishment. And here the punishment of death is borne by the animal rather than by the people. God's solution is substitution. The goat dies. The animal's blood is shed so that the people might live, that their blood might be spared. Now look at verse 15 again. He takes its blood behind the curtain. 
Now again, that's black and white, but try and get behind the words to the world behind the words. He takes its blood where? Behind the curtain. What happens if people go through the curtain? Aaron knows. They die. That's why his sons were consumed. You can imagine him thinking, what? Go behind the very curtain that brought my son's death? you imagine Aaron standing nose to curtain? I think he's sweating. I think he's crying as the memory of his sons rushes back. I think he's trembling. He holds his blood in his hands, but he's spilling. What gives him the confidence to take one step through the curtain? What gives him the confidence to step through this curtain of no entry to the Holy of Holies where the Holy God dwells? The blood in his hands. The fact that something else has been consumed that he might not be. The fact that something else's blood was shed that his might be spared. He takes its blood behind the curtain. How? Because he has the blood in his hands. His confidence is because something else has suffered the punishment sin deserved. It's not done on the cheap. The goat bears the price of the guilty. And look what he does in verse 15. He sprinkles it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins had been. Seven times he chucks the blood over everything, sprinkling everything in this kind of spiritual spring clean. What's the point? Blood doesn't cleanse anything. It just makes everything red. What it is cleansing is not anything that is physically dirty, but the uncleanness that is caused by a sinful human heart. And only until the blood has cleansed the place where God dwells can he be with his people. It's a little bit like before I got married and Sarah moved into my house, there was a significant amount of cleaning that needed done. It had been this kind of bachelor pad that had been unclean is probably kind. But there needed my mum to come and do this kind of deep cleansing of the flat before a girl could come and live in this flat. And the same is true of where God is going to dwell with his people. There must be the removing of all that would stain, all that would blemish, all that would be unclean before God, the Holy One, could dwell with a sinful people. All this happens behind the curtain away from the people. They couldn't see it. They were stood outside. Actually, even Aaron couldn't see it. If you look in verse 13, he puts incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover. Aaron couldn't even see what's going on. It's this blind splattering of blood. The important thing is that God sees. That he sees that blood has averted his wrath. That blood has paid the punishment that sin deserves. And so as it is cleansed, atonement is achieved. A holy God can now dwell with his people. Behind the curtain for the Lord, one goat is slaughtered. 
Now, if this is all unseen by the people, how are they to understand what is going on? Well, God in his kindness provides goat number two. Goat number two, outside the tent for the people, one goat sent away. The Israelites could not see the first goat that was achieving the means of atonement. And so God provides a second goat to demonstrate to them the result of the atonement. He puts it on display. It's as if he puts on a dramatization. He holds up a visual aid and says, Okay, Israel, this is what has gone on behind the curtain, behind closed doors. Goat number two, outside the tent for the people, one goat sent away. Look at verse 10. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord and used as making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Scapegoat, again, is that idea of God's solution is substitution. Now watch what happens to this goat. Verse 20. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He lays both hands on the head of the live goat and confesses over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. See what's going on? Both hands placed on the head of this goat as he identifies with it and audibly... He confesses all the sins of God's people. It's like a total transfer of sins from the people to this goat. You know what it is to sink your iPod? Well, the hands of the high priest function as the USB cable between your laptop and the iPod. Everything transferred from the people to the goat. And the longer he goes confessing sins, the more laden with sin this goat comes. You can see it being weighed down by this weight of sin. If you've seen the movie Hurt Locker, it's a movie about American soldiers in Iraq uh, disposing with uh, kind of roadside bombs. And you get these massively intense scenes where these American army officers hold massive amounts of explosives. It's such an intense movie. It's a similar picture in Leviticus 16. The high priest holding one seriously loaded goat, laced with the petrol of all of Israel's sins, confessing all their sins, all their sins. Think of the Israelites. What do you think their emotions are as the high priest is doing this confessing? As vocally, audibly, audibly, he confesses all their sins. Imagine I did that. Now, that I chose you uh, and audibly confessed all of your public and private sins before the rest of the people in this room. How would you feel? Awkward.com, I think. Blushes. There'd be a certain amount of avoidance of eye contact. As this high priest stands and he confesses your blatant lies. The exaggeration of stories to make yourself look good. As you hear him confess before everyone your gossip behind people's backs. As he confesses audibly all your 
resentment and bitterness that you harbour to that bloke at work or that mum at the school gates. As he confesses before everyone your lustful glances and your impure thoughts and your motives. As he confesses before everyone your laziness, your lack of servant-heartedness. Awkward. But at the same time, my guess is it would have been this realisation of saying, hang on, if this goat is taking all of my sins, then hang on, Mr. High Priest, take all of it. I think they would have moved from blushing to this kind of open confession saying, all right, Mr. High Priest, don't forget my lack of lazy, my lack of prayerfulness. Don't forget my, uh, my pride. Don't forget my lack of uh, servants and all these things that I've done in the past week. Take it all. If this goat is taking everything, then take everything. Confess everything. As this goat becomes more and more laden with all the sins of Israel. One of my favorite writers, uh, Andrew Bonner, writes vividly, these, these confessed sins, having been laid on its head, the goat stood laden with the curse against it alone. Will the lightning be directed now? On this one point, will will vengeance fall? This is one seriously loaded goat. But God's solution is substitution. The sins of the people laden upon this one goat. Now let's read on and see what happens. Verse 21. He shall send the goat away into the desert... In the care of the man appointed for the task, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert. Right, here's, here's the dramatization. Here's the visual aid. Here's the simplicity of Leviticus 16. This goat laden with all your sins does what? It goes. It's led away. Never to be seen again. It is led to a solitary place so that the people would never see it again. It is a dramatization of Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. The goat is gone. It is the glory of the gospel in the goat that's gone. When will East meet West? Never. So when will you meet your sin again? Never. When will this goat return into the camp of Israel? Never. So when will you see your sin again? Never. The glory of the gospel in the goat that's gone. It's bogged off. It's gone. Where's your sin? It's not here. It's been removed. Later writings tell us that this bloke assigned to the task of leading the goat away would tie a rock to the goat's neck and push it backwards over a precipice. And as it would tumble down the precipice, by the time it hit the bottom, it had been ripped into various pieces. What was the point? It's properly gone. It is irretrievably gone, never to return. The glory of the gospel 
in the goat that is gone. Where are your sins? Gone. It's class. So simple. Even a child can understand what is going on in Leviticus 16. Imagine a child on that day of atonement. And it looks to his mom and says, Mommy, mommy, where's the goat gone? It has gone. Mommy, mommy, why is everyone celebrating? Because the goat's gone. Mommy, mommy, will the goat be okay? No. But it goes that God might stay. It dies that you might live. Its blood is shed that yours might be spared. So simple. Where are your sins? They're gone. Can you imagine that Israelite who really struggles and wrestles with guilt? Who remembers all the sins of the past year and they keep coming back, attacking his conscience? Can you hear his Israelite brother speaking to him and saying, Listen, they're gone with the goat. Never to return. The glory of the gospel in the goat that's gone. Now look what Aaron does in verse 23. Aaron, this great high priest, who's done all this sacrificing, all these procedures, he goes into the tent of meeting and takes off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. Hold on to that, we'll come back to that. He shall bathe himself with water in the holy place and put on his regular garments. He starts off the day in bling, he becomes a servant, and at the end of the day he puts back on his bling. He communicates to the Israelites, job done, it is finished, he cries. Well, until next year. And the year after. And the year after that. It was one man, one place, but once a year. Now as we come through Leviticus 16 into the New Testament, it is not hard to see the glory of Jesus, the betterness of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the fulfillment in Jesus of everything we see in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 sketches in pencil what the New Testament goes over in bold multicolor. What we see in shadow in the Old Testament, we see in reality in the New What we see in the old black and white TV in the Old Testament, we see in 3D high definition in the New. And as we look, especially through the lens of the book of Hebrews, we see the betterness of what Jesus has done in his cross and his resurrection. I don't know if you've ever seen an Eddie Murphy movie. But when you watch an Eddie Murphy movie, you get to the credits and you realize that Eddie Murphy has pretty much played every single character in the film. He's played the middle-aged guy. He's played the overweight woman. He's played the old man. He's played the young guy. He's everyone. Well, in effect, Jesus is the Eddie Murphy of Leviticus 16. He plays almost every character as you read into the New Testament. So you see, he is the greater high priest. Uh, We looked at Philippians 2 a couple of weeks ago with the kids at Christmas. What do we see in Philippians 2? He is the one who is in very nature God's. And yet he makes himself nothing, taking the very nature of a what? A servant. Here is Jesus in all the bling of eternity. And yet he becomes a man to become a servant. He puts on the linen garments. 
He's the greater high priest. He is the high priest who, when he stands nose to curtain, does not need to tremble, does not need to sweat, does not need to take blood because he himself is the holiness of God. He's the greater high priest. He's the greater high priest who, as we read in Hebrews 9, does not enter a man-made tent that's only a copy of the true one, but he enters heaven itself to appear for us in God's presence. Hebrews 9.24. He's a greater high priest who does not slaughter a goat for the forgiveness of your sins. Why? Because you're not a goat. And so he offers not a goat but himself. Hebrews 10 verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But, Hebrews 9, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He's the great high priest. He is the greater sacrifice. His blood that was shed that you might live. And where is he sacrificed? He's not only goat number one. He is goat number two. Hebrews 9.25 Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. He's goat number one. He's goat number two. He is slaughtered and he is sent away. And does he have to do this year after year after year? Well, again, Hebrews 9 answers, No, he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Then Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. One man, one place, once it is finished. And so when he dies, that big temple curtain does what? Tears from top to bottom. The holy God can dwell with his people who have been made holy through his blood. And what does he do after he has finished making atonement? Aaron the high priest went, took off his servant garments and left them in the temple. What do you find in the tomb of the risen Jesus? John chapter 20. Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived, went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. Now, we're not only told that Jesus separates and divides his laundry, we are told that in resurrection glory, it is finished. He is the great high priest who has performed the great sacrifice, the glory of the gospel, because your sins are gone. They're gone. God's solution is substitution. Let me read you some glorious texts from the New Testament. 1 Peter 3. For Christ, one man, died for sins, one place, once for all, once. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What happens to Jesus on the cross? He becomes one seriously loaded goat. He becomes the one that all our sins are transferred to. The sinless one becomes a sinner. 
the righteous one becomes unrighteous. And the lightning bolt of God's fearsome holiness destroys him. So that you might become righteous. So that you might know no sins. So that your sins would be irretrievably gone. The greatest high priest with the great sacrifice. God's solution is a wonderful substitution in the person of his son. Where are your sins? Gone. If you're not a Christian this morning, one day you will meet your maker. One day you will come face to face with the glory of God's fiersome holiness. And if you stand laced in the petrol of your sin, you will be consumed. Today could be the day where you know that atonement, that cleansing. Where Jesus takes your petrol-like sin upon himself, is consumed on the cross, that you might be made clean. You can know that today. What about if we are Christians? What is the application to us? Well, Leviticus 16, if we come to the end of verse 29, we're told this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. For Israel, this was something to be remembered. So great, having looked at Leviticus 16 through the lens of the cross, that we come to the Lord's table. That we remember the very body and the very bloods that carried our sins as far as the east is from the west. We're so prone to forgetting. Uh, we're so prone to a kind of spiritual amnesia. Well, this do in remembrance of me. But more than that, in chapter 16, verse 29, we're told on the 10th day of the 7th month, you must deny yourselves. That phrase is repeated in verse um, 31. It is a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. The idea is to afflict yourselves, to afflict your soul. There is a sense that we need to remember the sense of our guilt. We need to be undone before God's holiness. We need to be utterly mournful of our sins to afflict, deny ourselves. Because only as we remember our sins will we remember our need of the Savior of sins. Confession of sin must be the daily habit for the Christian. Spurgeon on this says, Weep over your Jesus. Weep for him that died. Weep for him who was murdered by your sins and afflict your souls. A daily, we need to come back to this idea of you know, identifying with Christ, laying our hands on his head, saying, Jesus, take my sin. I mourn it. I hate it. It grieves me because of your holiness. Take it from me that it might be gone. It's right that we take some time to grieve over, to confess our sins. So that we might then rejoice again in the joy of the glory of the gospel and the goat that is gone. And I suggest that we take a few minutes to do that privately now that we bring to mind, that we confess these sins before God, that we might then rejoice in his atonement 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few minutes.